turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15. This is a very famous and familiar chapter about the vine and the branches. Remember the context. Last week we looked at chapter 14 and chapter 16, and we're preaching this, this section of the Bible from the outside in. John chapter 14 begins, let not your hearts be troubled. Chapter 16 ends, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And what we noted last week is Jesus had two major points to make with lots of different applications of them. But the first is that he is leaving his disciples. He's going away, and that is troubling. No wonder he said, let not your hearts be troubled. He tells them, but I go to prepare a place for you. And I'm coming back to get you, to take you, to be with me where I am. That should be comforting. He's not leaving us as orphans. And more than that, in the second point, he said, and when I go, I will ask the Father. And the Father and the Son together send to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it says, I'll ask the Father, he will send. Or Jesus says, I will send. The Father and the Son are one. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. They send the, the Holy Spirit to live in us. And in that promise, Jesus said, and through the Spirit, I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's the outside of the text. This is the heart of the text. What does it mean for Jesus to come and be in us and for us to be in him? At the end of chapter 14, Jesus said, come now, let us leave. Your commentaries may take you all over the place. I believe the most natural understanding of this is he has been teaching them in the upper room. The Synoptic Gospels give us certain details about uh, the Lord's Supper started there and the different teachings. John amplifies what the Synoptics say by uh, telling us what Jesus said. He washed the disciples' feet. He began chapter 14 in that upper room. He says, come now, let us leave. And he goes outside, outside the, the room through perhaps gardens. At least he's outside on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in that garden, after he prays, he's arrested. Jesus continues after he gets up and says, come now, let us leave, to teach his disciples. Perhaps it's because he went outside that he thought again of the agricultural illustration, the image of the vine and the branches. And so we'll read chapters 15, beginning of verse 1. We'll read a paragraph at a time and work our way through it. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that he will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit 
showing yourselves to be my disciples. Heavenly Father, as Jesus gives this illustration of the vine and the branches to his disciples, I pray that you would help us to understand what he's talking about. And Jesus himself will explain to us the love relationship that is at the heart of the matter as he lives in us. We pray that you would not only give us understanding, but experience, that we would abide in you and you in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the prayer you saw me slip from the translation, remain in me, to abide in me. That's on purpose. From now on, I'm going to uh, read this. The NIV says, remain in me, and I will remain in you. I think that abide is a better translation, except for the fact that it's kind of old English. We don't you know, go around talking about abiding unless we're a Quaker or Mennonite or something. So the NIV tried to, to go better than that. The reason I think remain has, has some problems is that it can sound negative. It can sound like stay. We taught our dog, Lucy, uh, for some of you who were able to come to our house for our, uh, the dinners at our house, uh, we, taught, we showed you the parlor trick after we would eat and we put, uh, have Lucy come into the kitchen. We'd say, Lucy, sit. And she'd sit. I'd say, stay. Just trembling, she'd say, as I put the plate down in front of her to lick. Stay. And then we'd add, pray. Put her hands in front of her head. She'd bow down her head. Now, I never could get her to close her eyes. She was looking up at that plate. Okay, and she'd jump on the plate and eat it. Somehow, remain, remain in place, stay in place, doesn't have the sense of abide. Christ will make his home in us as we make our home in him. In fact, it's the same root word as in chapter 14 when Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms, many abodes, many homes. It's a place to come inside and live and be. We're not guests who come for a visit. We come to make our home with Christ, and he makes his home in us. He makes his abode in us, and we abide in him, and he abides in us. Now, I don't think we should be so cast off of older English. As a little child, there was a children's song that gave me a good sense of what abide meant. Do any of you know this one? This Little cabin in the woods, little man by the window stood, saw a rabbit hopping by, knocking at my door. Help me, help me, help me, he said, where that hunter will shoot me dead. Little rabbit, come inside, safely you'll abide. And there's a children's song you'd have to leave out a line. Little man by the window stood, and we try to keep up with it that way, but always end with, Safely you'll abide. So I always had this positive sense of abiding was coming in where it's safe, where it's you're at home. Now, I had planned on already using this as the illustration for that word abide when our son James and his wife Sarah and their little, three little girls sent pictures last night of a perfect illustration of this because their cat, Annie, jumped up at the window with a baby rabbit in its mouth. Unfortunately, the cat did not have a killer instinct. The, the cat uh, had the maternal instinct and was carrying the baby rabbit like it would carry a little kitten. And so the, the baby rabbit was still alive. 
the cat did this twice. And you can see a picture of our little granddaughter holding this little rabbit. Little rabbit, come inside. Safely, you'll abide. And they rescued, they rescued the rabbit, the little bunny, uh, from the cat. There's something of coming inside and being safe that resonates with us. Whenever I say the word abide, don't be thrown off about it. Think of coming inside and abiding in Christ and finding our safety in him, for he has atoned for our sin and reconciled us to God and set heaven in store for us. Jesus, going outside with his disciples, thinks of the vine and the branches. Perhaps he walks by the vine and the branches. Perhaps he sees one full of fruit and uses it as an illustration, or perhaps he's just outside and he, he goes to it. He's gone to this illustration of a vineyard uh, before. He's told parables in the other Gospels with plots about the workers in the vineyard. It's, they're different than this. There's no plots to this. It's the kind of parable that's really an extended metaphor. But it's familiar. The Old Testament uses the vine as a picture of Israel. That God brought a vine out of Egypt and planted it in the promised land. In Isaiah chapter 5, God talks about his love for his vineyard. And yet the vineyard did not respond in love to him. It produced wild fruit, spoiled fruit. So this is a very familiar kind of image for Jesus and his disciples and the people of Israel who knew the Old Testament. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. He's the reality that was shadowed by the image of a vine, a vineyard of Israel in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of it all. I'm the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Some of the commentators are thrown off by that idea of in me. Does it mean that you can be in Christ and be a Christian and then be cut off by God if you don't do well enough? That, that just contradicts uh, many other passages in Scripture. Instead, we should just see this as every branch that does not bear fruit as picturing perhaps Judas Iscariot himself. He's been one of the 12. He was with Christ all along. He was in Christ externally in the band of the disciples, and yet he never believed. Or the Pharisees who were in the people of God, indeed religious leaders, teachers of the law. Externally, they were expressions of God's people. But when Christ came, they rejected him. This wasn't true of all the saints of the Old Testament. Jesus said to those Pharisees, he said, if, if you were like Abraham, if Abraham were your father, you would believe in me even as Abraham did. Even those saints in the Old Testament who didn't know the name of Jesus put their faith in Jesus, and they were in Jesus trusting that God would provide for the forgiveness of sins, the fulfillment of all of his promises, that the people of faith would be God's people. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that, and those who are just in church, who don't really believe in Christ, Jesus says, you'll be cut off. We need to pause there. There's an, there's an awful warning in this for us. For kids growing up in church, if you don't respond to Christ, 
if your spouse is bringing you to church, if you don't respond to Christ, if you want to be in church because it makes you feel good, makes you feel righteous, you're a better person than your neighbor, but you don't believe in Christ. You may believe facts about Christ, but you're not in Christ. You haven't given your life to him. This is an awesome warning. You don't produce the kind of fruit that is evidence of real faith in Christ. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. What does that mean? Well, if you're a gardener, you know what it means. And if we think of our, what we call our sanctification, we also know what it means. When we become Christians, when we receive Christ as our Savior and Lord, we don't become perfect, mature followers of Christ. There's an awful lot to be sorted through. There's a little book called My Heart, Christ's Home that really develops this whole theme. I've mentioned it before. I encourage you to get it. Read it to your kids. Read it to yourselves. As Christ comes into your life, he comes into your living room, then he starts knocking on other, the doors of other rooms. What's going on in your bedroom? What's in this closet? He begins to sanctify you and weed out the things that really don't belong in the life of a follower of Christ. He grows us up as Christians. Trials and tribulations, testings are a part of that. Sometimes it's when the hard time comes that we find out whether we're worshiping the thing or worshiping the God who gives the blessing because of the trial that takes it away. So that's pruning. But we want, if we want to be fruitful, we'll be glad for that. We don't want to be wild and unruly as followers of Christ. Children who are undisciplined at all end up feeling unloved. There was a movie that I can't remember the the name of right now, but a young man started dating his boss's daughter. And when his boss found out it was his daughter that the young man was dating, his boss, the, the father, it hit him. Just boom. He was upset about what he was doing with his daughter. And the young man said, nobody ever loved me enough to set me straight before. Now, that, I'm not advising the sinful abuse of your children. But I am saying, love your children. And if your parents are loving you and they're saying no to this and that you must do that, that is the a proper discipline that will grow you up. God, our Heavenly Father, does that too. Hebrews tells us that God chastens those that he loves. So when you allow something into our lives, he's doing it so that we would depend on him, that we would draw close to him, that we would learn about ourselves, that we would grow in him. This is pruning. Jesus says, you're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Do you see the grace in that? Two chapters before, he had told his disciples, you're going to fall apart. One of you is going to betray me. The lead one's going to deny knowing me. Yes, you're going to fall apart, but I have already chosen you to be my own. I am going to the cross to pay for your sins. I haven't accomplished it yet, but God is looking in grace through my work that I promised to do, that he sent me to do. And you're already clean because I have promised this to you. My word it lives in you. Verse 4, abide in me, and I will abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit 
unless you remain in me. You'll see at the end of the service in the postlude a picture of a, a grape vine. It really looks like a little tree with the vines, uh, the branches branching out with large clusters of grapes, just the fruitfulness of it. But you know when you no longer get, you're getting sap from the vine, from the trunk, the branch dies, and it can do nothing on its own. It's a very natural illustration. Jesus is telling his disciples, don't try to live for God. Give yourself to God through faith in me. And I will give you my Holy Spirit. And I will be at work in you. As you apply yourself, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, God will enable you to do his will and his good purpose. It's God's work in you. We should be much more concerned with abiding in the vine, abiding in Christ, than going out and doing things for Christ in our own strength. As a church, we can look at times where things are flourishing. We should not let it go to our heads as though it's our accomplishment for God. We can look at times when things are a struggle, and we shouldn't be distressed as though we are the ones that could achieve it, and what are we doing wrong? It's, we should be asking the question, are we abiding in Christ? Are we being faithful to Christ and to his word? Are we being obedient? And obedience begins with loving God, loving one another, and dwelling in the love of God for us. That's the beginning of faithfulness, and that begins to bring good fruit in our lives. He goes on to tell more about this illustration. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So he really said it twice. Don't you love repetition? Lots of times we need to hear it again to, to hear it really. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you didn't hear it the first time, here it is a little more explicitly. Being in church it no more makes you a Christian than being in the garage makes you a car. That's the old saying that I remember from when I was a teenager. Don't trust being in church. If you're in church and hearing about Christ, put your trust in him. Give your life to him. There's great warning here where it can look like you're in him on the outside, but not be in him in spirit. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. The very fact that uh, we can take this verse and lift it to think, as we remarked last week when the same thing was said, that we can somehow just say it in Jesus' name, and God will give us whatever we want, that means we're not really abiding in Christ. To abide in Christ, it means we hear first his call, follow me. We call him Lord. To abide in Christ is to say, your will, not mine, be done. And when we really get that, we can pray and lay our petitions before God. But underneath it all is, but you know best. I trust you. You do your will in my life and help me to glorify you in this. And guess what? God will do that. He will do that. But if you approach prayer as, if I just say the right words, say in Jesus' name, if I... If I read the Bible study and I claim to remain in Christ and he abides in me, then I can do whatever I want and I can ask whatever I want. That's, those are thorns and thistles that are showing not good fruit. This is to my Father's glory 
that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Think about this. Jesus came to redeem us so that we can be uh, engrafted into him so that we can bear much fruit. His work to accomplish the Father's will that he came to do includes us. Isn't that amazing? God didn't need us, but by his grace, he included us to do his will. It, it probably would have been easier from our perspective if God had just said, look, I can't depend on these sinful human beings. I'm going to let the angels take the gospel all over the world, and let's see how many of them receive it. I'll give the Holy Spirit to the ones that, that I would give repentance to, but I'm not going to trust these, these humans to be my ambassadors and take the gospel. The world will look at them and say, you hypocrites. You, you, you claim to be followers of Christ, but this is what you did. Blah, blah, blah. But God didn't do that. He said, I'm going to cleanse these people, give them my spirit. They will be the temple of the Holy Spirit, and they will be my ambassadors. And the work that he does through us is to his glory, not really to ours. When we, when we succeed, when we see something that's evidently grand and wonderful, we don't let it go to our heads. We say, God did this. And when we fail and fall on their face and do like Peter did and deny Christ, we don't blame God and say, you made me do it. We say, that was my sin. I trust in you and thank you for the forgiveness of sins. That's how we abide in Christ. Then Jesus explains it. He goes deeper. And I love the fact that he did because it's not a mechanical thing that somehow we abide in Christ by having the right attitudes of being in church and all of this. This at heart is a love relationship. Living in Christ is a love relationship. And if we don't get that, we're probably relying somehow on some kind of moralism, some list of Christian rules, some kind of really counterfeit Christianity to approve of ourselves. At the heart of this is a loving relationship. And there are some astounding things in this next paragraph. So if you've drifted off, gone to sleep, wake up. If you've never got this before, be amazed at this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Think about that. The love between God the Father and God the Son is a perfect love between the two perfect persons of the Trinity who in the mystery of the Trinity are one. And they share that love with the Holy Spirit too. It's a perfect love between perfect beings. It's amazing. And Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. It's not a lesser love. We tend to rank love, don't we? we the fundamental unit of love should be between husband and wife because of our sinfulness. It's often not. The next love is the love of parents and children, but you raise them up not to, to be with you and belong to you forever, to raise them up and send them out into the world. Sometimes that order gets reversed, that you love your children more than you love your spouse. That, that's a problem. We, we rank our loves. Then we, we love our friends. Then we love our, our acquaintances and our neighbors with diminishing kinds of love. Jesus says that have a special love between the Father and himself that he withholds. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, and our jaws should drop. How could God the Son 
along with God the Father who so loved the world that he sent his son, and the son is expressing his father's love in this. How could he love us with the same love that is between the persons of the Trinity when we are yet sinners? That's what moved the Father to send the Son. That's what moved the Son to lay down his life for us. It is an astounding, perfect love that we will never fully comprehend, but we should at least recognize and appreciate. He's not calling us to come inside and safely abide in the prison, but in a household that is full of love. Now, love is not this simple, you know, tingly feeling that you have to maintain the emotion. There's something firmer, you know, more concrete than that. It is a, you are so important. You are more important to me than anything else in the world. You, I love you more than I love myself. That, that, that's love. I will lay down my life for you. That's what Jesus did for us. Then verse 10, he says, If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Here we can stumble. All of a sudden, that doesn't sound like a good friend. It's like, if you obey me, then I will love you. It's a conditional love. We know that's not the kind of love of Jesus for us because he loved us while we were yet sinners, before we knew him, before the foundations of the world. The Bible tells us that he, he chose us to be adopted as his children. It's an amazing, unconditional love that God has extended to us. So how do we read this? In English, we, when we hear if, we think if, then, cause and effect. That's not always the case, not even in English, and certainly not the case here. It says, if you obey my commands is not the cause of the love of Jesus for us. It is evidence that we have been united by faith to Jesus. How do you know an apple tree? Well, if I look at a tree and it's growing an apple, I say, that's an apple tree. The apple that I see is not what caused it to be an apple tree. It's because it is an apple tree that it produced the fruit. And producing that fruit, I say, it's an apple tree. Jesus is saying, if you obey my commands, if you follow me, that is the evidence that you are mine and you abide in my love. Just as I have obeyed my father's love and remain, abide in his love. I, I, I slipped back into remain there. Remain sounds like started and then stopped. Abide means this is where you live. This is where you live. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Let's stop there. Do you catch the chain of love in this? As the Father has loved the Son, so the Son has loved his followers. And he tells his followers, his disciples, love one another as I have loved you, as the Father has loved me. That's astounding. That's not an ounce of love. We fall so short. We love the people that we're attracted to most. We do have primary relationships. It's, don't go loving someone else's wife in that way. That, that's wrong. We have the structures of relationships. 
But the fact is, is we as Christians should love one another with the kind of love that the Son has shown us and that the Father gives to the Son. When we gather together next week for outside worship, I have been amazed at the complexity of how we handle this as a church. And there are so many different opinions about what we should do uh, with, from the inside, outside, masks or no masks, singing or no singing, yeah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And people feel deeply about these things because this is one of those extreme times. But I call you in the name of Christ from this passage, let your love for one another supersede everything. It doesn't mean affirm everything. We are followers of Christ. We're obedient to his word. We are. But because he has loved us, he calls us to love one another with that same love. We can sacrifice our own opinions and convictions if, not they're, if, they're, if they're not conscience things. If the state calls us to stop worshiping God altogether and that we need to deny our Savior, we have to say, I need to obey God rather than man. I need to obey God rather than man. Otherwise, let us have loving spirits towards one another and be willing to sacrifice before uh, one another and before our neighbors, our community. Do we have that heart? Then Jesus says, after emphasizing, do what I command, do what I command, do what I command. If you hear that enough, enough, what do you start thinking your relationship is with the Savior? I'm just an obedient servant. He got down into the lowest position of servant and washed his disciples' feet, and he told his disciples to wash one another's feet. We are to take the position of servant. We're not to be uh, higher and mighty than that. That's the way we are to serve each other. But the fact is, we're not merely servants, not in Jesus' eyes. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command. Again, this is not manipulation. We're not, whenever you see if, you think cause and effect. But Jesus is saying, when you do what I command, even though it looks like being a servant, you're not a servant, you're my friend. Suppose a husband hires one of his children at, at his job, and he starts telling his son or daughter what she needs to do, what the job description is. And she turns around, or he turns around and says, you just treat me like your employee. And the father says, no, no, no. You're my son. You're my daughter. This is the role. This is the job. But no, you're not merely an employee. Jesus said, you're not merely servants. You're my friends. Wow. It's one of the few places in the Bible that uh, this kind of terminology is expressed. But don't ever neglect it or leave it out. It's a special relationship. Now, it's a problem when we only see Jesus as a friend. We don't see him as Lord. We don't see him as, as Savior. We don't have a reverence for him. It's just, he's a pal. He's my buddy. No. The God through whom the Father created all the universe, to whom all reverence and majesty is due, calls you and calls me his friend. That's amazing, and that's moving. It makes me want to follow him all the more, not less. So I've called you friends. For everything I've learned from my Father, I've made known to you. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. We've already covered that point before. This is my command. Love each other. That's where Jesus lands in this. What does it mean to bear fruit? I want to comment on that before we leave the passage. First, even our faith is the gift of God. Our faith is the work of the Holy Spirit. We didn't come to Christ because we were smarter than our neighbor. We came to Christ because we who were dead in our trespasses and sins were regenerated, made alive in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's a gift, lest any of us should boast. Secondly, fruit has to do with our character. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. It goes on from there, kindness, until we get to the last one, self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit in you. You know, it's, it's hard to get past the character fruit and skip it and then be fruitful in terms of evangelism or leading others to Christ, being witnesses for Christ. If you don't have the character fruit of the Spirit, then you'll be a very broken instrument. God can use anybody, but he wants his disciples to be fruitful in their being so that they can be credible witnesses for him and produce fruit in many people coming to him. Finally, in closing, it says the, the world hates you. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And he goes on to say this love relationship is not some sappy, uh, new age, sentimental thing. We live in the fallen world. and Remember how chapter 16 ends. In this world, you will have trouble. The world hated Jesus. He's the most loving human being ever because he expressed the love of God the Father for us in becoming one of us and going to the cross for us. But he was hated because there is an authority claimed there. He says, you're not your own. It's wrong for you to turn away from the one who gave you life. You, should, you need to repent of that and give your life to God. You will die and stand before him. You don't want to stand before the one who gave you life and say, I don't want you because that leads to eternal death. But we want to do what we want to do. And unless God really is at work in us and drawing us to him to give, it, to give us faith, we will do what we want to do and we'll reject Christ and the world will. And as we're identified with Christ, Jesus is saying, if the world hates me, the world will hate you. Now, I think we have a very friendly culture still. We get all distressed about our culture because there are little signs of, of needles, etc. But we live in a blessed, one of the most blessed times and places Christians have ever lived. Because there have been times that Christians have been uh, put on crosses and tarred and burned for torches and, and places in the world today where Christians are giving their lives for Christ. You, you cannot express your faith uh, publicly at all. You're put in prison, etc., etc. We live in a blessed time, so we, we, we skip over passages like this. We need to realize that Jesus is saying, the world is like, lest that hunter cheat you. The world is not a friendly place for Christians unless it's restrained. Jesus says, come inside. When I was seven years old, and we'll circle all the way back to when I was a child, I learned a little bit of this loving relationship with Jesus before I really knew Jesus. I would go to a Wednesday night prayer meeting with, uh, in our church, and we'd sing some hymns before we'd have the prayer, and one of the hymns was Living for Jesus. When I was seven years old, really, uh, before I, as an eight-year-old, accepted Christ, 
I learned this hymn and I loved the hymn. It somehow resonated that this is the relationship we have with Christ. And perhaps because somebody taught me to sing harmony uh, to this uh, tune, I, I, I learned it and, and the words were imprinted in me. It's like the kindling laid in my life that God lit by his spirit with fire. When I learned living for Jesus, a life that is true, trying to please him in all that I do, yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free, this is the pathway of blessing for me. And I'll come back to the chorus. I want you to know the second verse. Living for Jesus who died in my place, bearing on Calvary my sin and disgrace. Such love constrains me to answer his call, follow his pathway, and give him my all. And then the chorus goes, O oh Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give my life to thee, for thou in thine atonement, I had no idea what atonement meant, but I knew it was good. Thou in thine atonement didst give thy life for me. I own no other master, my heart shall be thy throne. My life I give henceforth to live, to thee, O Christ, for alone. You notice how often I say, we give ourselves to him who gave his life for me. Be careful what you teach your children, because what you feed into their lives at a young age can shape their perspectives. And in this case, my perspectives was shaped that living with Jesus, living in Jesus, is a loving relationship. And it was just delight for my soul. Come inside. Safely, you'll abide in him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your love extended to us through Jesus Christ. You sent him in love. He gave his life in love. The Holy Spirit comes in love to live in us, that we would love you in return. And Father, out of that love, we pray that we would desire, that we would delight in following our Savior, studying your word, reading it, understanding it, and being transformed by it that we would be pleasing and glorifying to you. We learn this, that the way we glorify you as God is by loving you and doing what you command. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.